The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. About 10 years ago, there was a comic book that went up for auction in New York. And it was sold for $1.1 million. Now, you might think, that sounds a lot of, like a lot of money for a comic book, and I would also agree. But I'm sorry, I just had to buy it, okay? I had $1.1 million lying around, and I just, no, I didn't buy it. Um, that's a surprise to you. Um, I did not, was not the one who bought it, but they bought it, and it, uh, it was first released in uh, 1962, and it was in mint condition. It actually is the second highest uh, purchased comic book. The highest ever in recorded history was the from uh, original 1938 Superman, like the original comic book for Superman, which seems like, okay, yeah, Superman, you'd think that's probably the most expensive comic. But what's the second? This one went for 1.1 million. Uh, what is the second most expensive comic book ever purchased at auction? I'll show you a picture of it. Go ahead and bring up that picture of it. It's the original Spider-Man comic, August 15th, 1962, was sold for 12 cents. If you bought that for 12 cents and you still own it, then good for you, um, happy for you. That was a great investment. Um, but here's what's interesting about this particular uh, original Spider-Man comic, is that in this comic, they not only introduced the character of Spider-Man, but in the very first comic, it starts with his origin story. And that's sometimes unusual for superheroes. A lot of times in the comics, they would introduce the superhero and then later tell you his origin story. But in this particular comic, maybe that's also why this one was so expensive. They not only uh, went for so much money, they not only introduced the character, but tell you his origin story. And it's one of the most memorable origin stories. Some consider the best origin story of all superhero comics. And there's a couple different variations of how it goes, but they're all very, very similar. I'm going to share with you um, what it says in the original comic, the origin story in the original comic. There's a teenager by the name of Peter Parker. And he's a complete outcast. He's considered a, a nerd, a bookworm, he's called. He's bullied at school. He's either overlooked or he's pushed around. No one gives him the time of day. And he's just really downcast from really, uh, what his role is in, in, his, in his high school and just really in his world. Everyone overlooks him. He lives with his aunt and uncle. And one day when he's on a, a science field trip, they're looking at these huge machines that are doing experiments with radioactivity. And while they're doing a demonstration with these machines, right in the middle of the machines, a little spider descends down, basically gets zapped and becomes radioactive. And right before the spider dies, it leaps onto the nearest living thing, which is Peter Parker, bites him on the hand, and then dies. Peter Parker realizes, oh, I've just been bit by a spider, but it burns so much. And he walks outside, and he's sweating, and he's dizzy, and he kind of wanders out into the middle of the street, and a car comes whizzing by. And at the last minute, he jumps out of the way, but doesn't realize he leapt with superhuman height over onto a nearby brick wall and is clinging to the wall. 
And while he's frozen there, he's like, how am I doing this? And then he slowly starts climbing up the wall. And he realizes, I, I'm like a spider crawling up the, the wall. And he realizes that spider, after it was made radioactive, transferred its spider abilities into his body. And so now he not only has the ability to climb up a wall, he actually has incredible strength, many, many times more what the average human could have. He's got spider strength. He's got the ability to climb up walls like a spider. He eventually learns that he has a spidey sense, and then he can shoot webs, and all this kind of thing comes next. But see, here's the thing about an origin story. It not only tells you where the superhero got their strength, but it also tells you what motivates them to be a superhero. And that becomes very significant to Peter Parker's story because he didn't instantly begin thinking about saving other people. In fact, his first instinct was to get back and show the world, get back at the world, show the world that he's not a nobody, that he can make something of himself. And so what he sees is that there is this televised wrestling competition with all of these crazy characters, and the winner receives a small sum of money. So he decides he's going to get dressed up in a costume, and he's going to go wrestle because he knows he can win with this, even though he's a sh shrimpy little guy. He knows that he can win and win the money. So he goes in, there's this big, strong guy there, and sure enough, he leaps over the guy and clings to the wall and throws the guy down and has all this, uh, eventually uses his webs and all this stuff, and they can't believe uh, what, he's, what he's done, and he wins all this money. And he's like, ha ha, I'll show the world, I'll make something of myself. But as he's uh, walking out of that uh, wrestling facility, he hears someone, he's walking down this long hallway, and there's this elevator at the end. And he hears from him out, thief, thief. And he turns around to see uh, a burglar, a thief. He's running with a bag full of money under his arms. And he's running straight at Peter Parker to get out the elevator. And all these people are running behind, but there's no way they're going to catch him. And in this moment, he has a decision to make. Is he going to use this opportunity to try and trip the guy, grab the guy, fight the guy, hold the guy? Or is he going to let him go by him? Peter Parker's standing there. He's still got his his uh, original Spider-Man costume in his hands. As the man runs by him, he just steps aside. And he says, not my problem. The man gets on the elevator and flees. The people who are following this thief, they run up to him and say, what were you doing? You could have stopped him. You could have just, if you'd done anything, if you just tripped him or grabbed him, if you'd done anything, we could have caught him, but you let him go free. And he just says, look, this world's done nothing for me. Why would I do anything for this world? And he leaves. That night, he gets back to his aunt and uncle's house. And sitting out in front of his uncle's house are uh, police officers. And when he arrives, he's greeted with the terrible news that his uncle was murdered in the streets. He was shot and killed. Devastated, Peter Parker asked, do they know who, who did it? And they said, yes, we know who the man, the murderer is. And uh, he's locked, up, locked himself up in this warehouse where it's kind of at this standoff. So Peter Parker runs out the back door, puts on his Spider-Man costume, and he webs his way to this warehouse. And when he gets there, he leaps in the window, and he confronts the murderer. And he can't see his face. It's got a shadow over his face. And he uses his web to take the gun. He uses his strength to, to punch the guy. And he gets him subdued, and he looks into his face. And he realizes it was the thief that he had let go 
and escape. And he was so broken at that moment that the comic ends, the, the first original comic ends there. And I want to show you the final frame in the original Spider-Man comic. This is the final frame at the very end. It looks like this. And a lean, silent figure slowly fades into the gathering darkness, aware at last that in this world, with great power, there must also come great responsibility. If you know anything about the Spider-Man saga, then you know that that final line, with great power comes great responsibility, that final line, it's like a, a bell that's tolled on that first, first, very first comic, and it rings all the way through, even to the modern movies. That's a feature. It's like the motto of the Spider-Man uh, series, the Spider-Man story. And I wonder if the reason that, that it's just grabbed a hold and stayed with the story, that original statement with great comes great responsibility, I wonder if it's because deep inside there's something about that story that resonates deeply. There's something about that statement that we know is true. That we know if, if we took everything in our lives, if we just kind of compiled all the things in our lives that we've been given, we take maybe the educational opportunities or the financial opportunities or the job opportunities or the experiences or the talents and abilities. We, we take all of those things, even our, our life itself and the moments we've been allowed to live on this planet. If we compiled all of those things, I think there's something deep down inside we know if I use all of that just on myself, if I spend it on me, there's something deep down we know that that's a recipe for a thin, hollow, unfulfilling life. There's this drive down deep that knows that, man, to really live is to give our lives to something greater than us to expend out all the things that we have a part of this life, to give our lives to some mission, some cause greater than ourselves. Let me bring that to what we're talking about today. Let me bring that over to, to, to the main idea. If I could just give you one big idea to walk out of here with, it's this. You cannot find a fulfilling life until you've given it away to the mission your creator has called you to. You cannot find a fulfilling life until you give it away to the mission that your creator has called you to. Now you say, okay, well, yeah, I, I know. And I, I ask those kinds of questions. Like, how do I find out what that is? I mean, is, it, is there something? Am I in the wrong job? Do I need to, like, you know, go start a nonprofit? Like, what am I? I, I want to do that. What does it do? Or am I not am I doing enough? Like, what does that look like? I want to show you a passage that answers those questions. 
want you to look uh, with me at um, Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Now, there's a lot of different passages that we could have looked at um, as we're in this origin series. We're looking at the key passages and concepts that have shaped us over the last 20 years. And honestly, um, there were several that communicated this truth, but this particular passage, if I, as far as I know, the first time it was taught was in 2008, and it was a moment that really captured and spoke something into our church. So if this is your church, I want you to know part of your church family's story. Luke chapter 10. We're going to pick it up in verse 1. Luke chapter 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Now, I want to pause right there and just kind of get our bearings. What's happened? Jesus pulled together. He's got the 12 disciples, but there's a larger group that routinely follow. There's a larger group of men and women that are following with him. Uh, There's probably over 100 He pulls 72 of them together, and he sends them out into towns and villages in the surrounding region by twos. He doesn't send them by themselves. They go by twos, and uh, they're they're sent um, to go into those towns and villages. Well, what are they supposed to do? Well, we don't really know what they're supposed to do, because in the very preceding chapter, Luke chapter 9, uh, verses uh, 1 and 2, He does the same thing, but first with that smaller group of 12, he sends them by twos into the towns and villages, and specifically, they are to preach the kingdom of God and to heal. They're to heal diseases uh, in the name of Jesus. And you say, okay, well, I hear a lot about that kind of thing in the gospel, so I guess that's not a huge surprise. But it's actually really remarkable if you think about where in the story of Jesus' ministry this takes place. Because just a few verses earlier, Jesus has begun to tell them that he has come down to earth, he will give up his life to die, and will rise again on the third day. He's just begun to share that with them them in these last few verses. And if you know from what the other gospels say, when they start, when Jesus starts telling them that he's going to die and rise again, the disciples, they don't take that very well. In fact, they're like, I don't what's he saying? That doesn't make any sense. In fact, Peter actually is brave enough or maybe stupid enough to say out loud, no, that'll never happen to you, Jesus. To which Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, which is a pretty rough rebuke, if I'm being honest. He says, get behind me, Satan. And he's obviously made clear that Peter is mistaken. Here's what I want you to see. They are still not 100% clear on the whole gospel. They're still getting it. But that's how early Jesus sends them out by twos to do his work, to share his message. They walked into a city, a town. Maybe they knew people there. Maybe they didn't. They started sharing, talking about Jesus. And we're doing that. That's how equipped they were. It was fundamental, very beginning. And it's almost like Jesus is saying, this is so fundamental to following me. It's not just for like the super smart, super gifted, super followers. This is just what it means to follow Jesus. And so he sends them out. But it's very specific about which cities and towns he's sending them to. 
It says it. I want you to look back into your Bible in verse 1. It says that he sends them into particular cities and villages. It's the ones that he's about to go to. In other words, if it was me, there'd be a lot of comfort there. Walking in there, maybe I'm with like Bartholomew or something, one of the other 12. I'm like, why'd I have to go with Bartholomew? Why not like John or one of them, you know? But I'm stuck with Bart, you know, he and I here in this town. We're probably going to just mess this whole thing up. But you know what? Jesus is coming. He'll clean up the mess that we make on the other side. He sends them where he's about to go. There's comfort in that. Okay, now look what he says next in verse 2. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Now, Jesus was all the time giving like agricultural illustrations. That would have been common. It was an agrarian society. He's giving these illustrations because they would all have a context for these. They'd be very uh, prevalent. You were either working uh, with crops or you had worked with crops or knew someone who did. I mean, this is very familiar to them. And he's describing harvest time. And if you're harvesting, if you're wanting to harvest, and yet your barn is empty, you have one of two problems. First is a harvest problem. Maybe there's not a good harvest. Maybe you didn't get the sunlight you needed. Or you got too much sunlight and it scorched all the crops. Maybe there's not enough water and they withered. Maybe there's too much water and it flooded your field. Uh, maybe you had great crops and yet bugs came through and, and ate them or some kind of disease came through and, and destroyed your crops. You might be sitting there at harvest time and your barn is empty because you had a harvest problem. You don't have anything to harvest. Or maybe it's just the wrong time to harvest. Maybe it's in the middle of winter or you just planted or whatever. It could be a harvest problem. That might be why your barn is empty. But there's a second potential problem you could have. You could have a labor problem. You'd be like, look, my fields are ready for harvest. Just, maybe it's a cornfield. There's these beautiful ears of corn everywhere that just need to go be plucked. Maybe it's an, an orchard. And there's pomegranates, or maybe there's dates, or uh, whatever. You've got figs. They're all ready. They just need to be plucked. Or grapes that just need to be harvested in. Maybe it's a vegetable garden. You've got these bright vegetables ready. They're just sitting there ready. And you have maybe the issue is a labor problem. And I would suggest of the two, the sadder of the two would be a labor problem. Right? I mean, it's tough to look at these beautiful apples hanging on a tree or these beautiful vegetables or these whatever, the beautiful harvest just being ready to be brought in. You just don't have anybody to go and get them. Like that's definitely the worser of the two problems. And Jesus says, which of the two problems that there is in the kingdom of God. And it's not a harvest problem. He says the harvest is plentiful. There's fruit just ready to be plucked. In another place, he says the fields are white with harvest. They're just ready for someone to go get it. He says it's not a harvest problem. It's a labor problem. The harvest is plentiful just don't have the laborers. The laborers are few. 
And so he says, here's how to pray. Pray for laborers. Pray for laborers. You know, it's so provocative because so often, if you know Jesus, you might be here and you, you are, would not consider yourself a follower of Jesus. And I'm so glad that you're here and hearing about Jesus straight from the scripture. But if you're here and you're following Jesus, maybe you've had an experience where you've seen a, a, maybe a moment where you've wished there was a greater harvest, greater response to God, a greater harvest for the work of, of God. You wanted a greater harvest for God's kingdom. And often our minds initially go to, well, the problem is just a harvest problem. My friends that I'd love to talk to Jesus about, they're just too far gone. You know, they just, they don't care. Or, you know, now my family, they're just antagonistic towards my faith. Or the people, you know, wouldn't listen. Or, you know, our, our city, it's just, it's too dry or too dead or too sinful. It's just, there's a harvest problem. But Jesus corrects that. It's not a harvest problem. It's a labor problem. He says, pray to the Lord of the harvest for laborers. That's our prayer. We need laborers to go get the harvest. So he leaves him with that thought. He says, um, he says, pray, and then he's going to say one word. He says a lot more, but one particular word is his next word. And this is a word that this is not the only place that he says this. I want you to look at the very next word in verse 3. Go. In other words, I want you to imagine someone gets down on their knees and they're like, oh, Jesus, please, you're right. I, I believe you. I believe that the city is ready for harvest. I believe that my workplace is ready for harvest. I believe that my neighbor is ready for harvest. There's fruit to be, to be harvested for the kingdom of God. I believe that my family, my extended family is ripe for harvest. I believe that my social media presence is ripe for harvest. I, I believe that, that uh, other, other cities and maybe even other nations are ripe for harvest. I believe that the harvest is plentiful. So Lord, I believe that. So now I'm praying for laborers. Would you rise up laborers in, in, the in my neighborhood and in my, in, in, my, in, my, um, in my city and in my workplace and in my family and, and all around? Would you rise up more laborers? And then Jesus says, congratulations, I've already answered your prayer. Go. You're it. You are the answer to your prayer for more laborers. That's you. See, here's something that, that Jesus says. I mean, right at the beginning, he's sending these disciples out. See, a lot of times what our, our pushback is to be laborers. It's like, look, I'm not at that level of like maturity or I don't have all the answers. Like, you know, if someone asks me a question back, I don't know what to say. I'm not good at, at saying things. Like, I don't know what to do. And here's why this passage is so profound. These 72, they all scattered when Jesus was arrested. They ran away and hid and were confused. Peter even denied Jesus. But so fundamental is the call to go. That all that really matters is that he's sending. All that really matters is not only is he sending, all that matters is he's following. If he's sending you there, that's because he's about to go there and do a work. It's not up to you. He's just sending you there 
ahead of him so he can go to work. So here's the thing, church. Your neighborhood, if you're there, Jesus is coming to that neighborhood. Your extended family, you're like, okay, but you don't know my extended family. It's, we're a pretty lost bunch, okay? You don't know about my extended family. You know what? But, but you're there. That means Jesus is coming to that family. Your friend group, that means Jesus is coming to that friend group. Your city, he's put us here. That means Jesus is coming here. See, that's what Jesus does. All he wants you to do is go. You say, like, I don't know, I don't know how to do it. I don't know what to, what to do. Well, that's, that's the pattern. This is not the first time he said go. It's not the last time he said go. He came down to earth, he died on a cross, he rose again from the dead, started appearing to his disciples, and he says, and eventually said, hey, I want everyone to meet me on a hill in Galilee, and they go up on this mountain, and he leaves the final words of his ministry. It's definitely not the final words, he's, he's coming again, and he'll have more words to say. The words of his ministry. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I mean, he's just showing his credentials. You want to know who I am? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he's leveraging all of that authority into this world. This word. Go. Go into all the world. Preach the gospel. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them all that I've commanded them. And remember, I will be with you always to the end of the age. And with that... He's lifted up into the sky, ascends back up to heaven, and they're all just staring into the clouds. It's quite an exit. That's like the ultimate drop the mic moment, okay? Like if you can just ascend up, like you win, okay? That's, that's like the amazing moment. And maybe you're like, look, I just, it's things like that in the Bible that I just, I don't know if I can believe that. Well, the people who saw it couldn't believe it either. And that's why they just stood there, mouths open, staring into heaven. And finally, God had to tell one of the angels, just go down there, please, okay? The angels are standing there like, what are you still doing here, okay? Go. He gave you some instructions. Get out of here. Oh, yeah, that's right. We're supposed to go into all the world. And they, and they left, and they waited for the Holy Spirit to be given to them. And then they went to the ends of the earth. And by the way, those final words of his ministry, they're not just for that generation. It's for you. It's for me. See, this has been one of those callings for us as a church. It's that if we are called to follow him, it means something. That's why it's significant. He could have vanished. He could have kind of faded away, but he slowly ascends up to heaven. Why is that so significant? It's that as he's telling us to go, he's reminding us that he started in heaven and he was commanded by the Father to go and he was obedient. And so if we have the audacity to carry the name of Christ and call ourselves Christian, that means we're following in the footsteps of someone who's obedient to go. So he says, okay, if you're following me, you go too to a world that I love. We say things uh, here like every mathetes is, is on mission. Every follower of Jesus has a ministry. What this means is church, it's not just that those of us who work here at the church are called to ministry. You are called to ministry. You are called to be a missionary. You are, you are a missionary. 
You are a missionary in Pembroke Pines, in Cooper City, in Doral, in Kendall, in Miami, in Sunrise, in Fort Lauderdale, in Boca, in Coral Springs. You are a ministry in Minneapolis, and, and in Norway, and in Guatemala, and the Canary Islands. You are a, a missionary to wherever God has planted, because if he has planted you there, it doesn't matter how ill-equipped you feel. If you are there, Jesus is coming to those people. That is your mission, and that is your ministry. And that's who we have committed. We want to become that kind of people. You know, the gravity of this really sunk in in one particular moment in our, our history of our church. And it was back in 2010. And if you've been around City Rev, you've probably hear, heard the story. You might have been there for this moment. If you haven't, I, wanna, I want you to know it because it's a significant part of the story of your church. And if you have heard it before, I want you to hear it again because he did a work in us through this moment. It was th that spring of 2010 that a, an earthquake really devastated Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and just broke our hearts. And we responded by several ways. Part of it was taking mission trips down and that first year of mission trips in particular, it was just such a crisis. I mean, there was so much aid work that um, we were able to help those local organizations do and just kind of bolster what they're doing. We brought supplies. We brought people out of medical background. In particular, there's this one orphanage about an hour and a half outside of uh, Port-au-Prince that they, were, they had taken some children who had been orphaned because their parents had died in the earthquake and had relocated them to this orphanage outside of uh, Port-au-Prince in a smaller town. And we were going there to aid an organization there. And I remember we were there, we were sharing about Jesus and, and being with the kids and showing them love and bringing supplies. And um, there's this one moment where a woman shows up with her, with her two children. She had her son was in her arms and her little girl was walking beside her and she slowly approached the orphanage and the son was laying, it was the middle of the day and he was laying, I mean like almost lifeless. And we very quickly realized this was a medical emergency. And so several from our team took him out of her arms that a local hospital had donated and we started feeding um, this child f uh, formula that's for a baby. And I remember he barely could open his eyes, but as they started pouring that formula into his mouth, like it's like his eyes opened up. It was like pouring life into him. And I saw that the, as we were tending to the kids, we saw the, the mom talking to the head of the orphanage and, and some of the workers and, and one of the local pastors and I remember at one point, the local pastor, he, he walked away and he walked to the other side of the orphanage and I watched him from a distance and he burst into tears. And I gotta tell you, um, I hadn't seen that because these, these amazing Haitian pastors and ministers, they are hardened warriors. They've seen a lot, but something moved him to tears. And I walked over to him and I said, hey, what's going on? And he looked at me and explained the situation. He said, look, woman, her children are starving. She brought them here as a last effort so that they could survive. And she came not just to get food. She came 
to surrender her rights to her children because she knows that under her care, she's not able to provide for them. So she's turning over her own children out of love for them. And remember, we, we, we captured this moment. Can you just take a look at this picture? I remember looking at the little girl in a dress. The little boy, he's wearing little khaki pants and a little dress shirt. It's almost like one of the workers said she probably dressed them in, in their best. As she would say goodbye to them. And I was talking with this pastor about this moment, and he said something that I'll never forget, ever. He looked at me in the eyes, and with this intensity, like this roaring fire coming up out of his bones, he looked at me dead in the eyes, and he said, don't you see, this is not a game. I walked away and I sat by myself for a minute. And my first gut reaction was, I know that this is not a game. That's why we're here. I know it's not a game, don't I? We came back that weekend and that Sunday we showed all of those, those pictures and it's part of what fueled a, a passion to send people uh, and resources and send aid to these incredible organizations and cities around our world fueled our efforts for missions. But that rang out into our story. So we wanted a people that we never played the game. We know that what we're about, it's serious. Eternity is at stake. Lives are at stake. And while that's always what we wanted to be about, it was like that was a moment that Jesus sowed into our origin so we'd never forget. Because there's such a thing as a church game. And maybe you've never thought of it like this, but if you've been around church for any length of time, you know it. Here's how the church game goes. There's a, a, a group of church staff that just want successful ministries, successful careers. And, and so then there's a, a, a congregation, and what they want is they want just a comfortable type of Christianity. Don't preach things I don't like. Don't make me uncomfortable. Don't confront me. What I want is for you to sprinkle in just little tips on how I can achieve my own dreams for my life. And so the church staff says, okay, we'll do that if you do the things that we want. You know, help us make this successful. And so then they say, okay, you do that as long as you preach that way and you do that kind of ministry, then, you know, we'll give a little, we'll help out, we'll invite some friends. Yeah, well, it's this mutually, you know, helpful relationship. And we drew a line and said, we will never do that. We never want to be that. Jesus, spare us from a day when City Rev is ever that. Because church, we're at war. And our battle's not even flesh and blood. It's principalities and 
evil. They'll want to see lives and families and children destroyed. It's sin and darkness that's trying to reign in our city. And we drive past on our commutes to work millions of people that are right now in South Florida facing an eternity away from God in hell. And we know that it can never be a game. We've got to hear what Jesus commands us to do. And no matter if it, if it pushes us, if it stretches us, if it offends us, we come back to Jesus and say, Jesus, we renounce all that we have to follow after you to be your disciple. Just send us on mission. Mobilize us to your purposes. Because we look at all that we've got. And it resonates deep inside of us. We look at all that we've been given. Any experiences, any education, any finances, any, any successes that we've got. Even the very breath that we have. Not only our, our life, but our new life is new creations. Born again by the work of Jesus. We look at all that he's given us. An eternity that stretches before us. What Jesus, what we're compelled as we're following after Jesus to say. Is that I'm not going to amass all of this and just spend it on myself. That is no way to live. Jesus said, unless you lose your life for me, you will never find it. And so we've committed to being a people. that surrender this life to expend this life first and foremost for the kingdom of God, not our own kingdoms. So church, what does that mean for you? You have a mission. You've been sent already. You're there. Look, just look around you. You don't necessarily have to leave your neighborhood, leave your family, leave your work. You don't have to quit and start a nonprofit necessarily. Look, the fields are white with harvest. Just commit every day to be a laborer. You're passing by people. You say, yeah, but I don't, I don't know if they're going to listen. If Jesus sent you, that means he's got to work. Be ready for that. You know, sometimes um, church, sometimes Christians, when they go to church and they invite someone to church, they invite their Christian friends to church. They say, hey, I'm, I'm going to, um, to this new church, or I've got my church. Hey, you should come check out my church. But if you're telling it a Christian, that's net zero for the kingdom of God. In fact, you're probably stealing them from another church. They're serving there. They're financially contributing to that mission. It's net zero. Jesus like, you just reshuffled the same deck. Don't invite your Christian to your church. But make it your mission every week that someone who needs the hope of the gospel is sitting next to you. You say, I don't know what they'll do. I don't know either. But go and watch what happens when Jesus follows up after you. If you're thinking about jumping in, giving, or jumping in and serving, and you hear that call that we're making, you say, you know, I probably should give a little to the old church, or I probably could find a place to serve and help the church out, then don't do it. Because that's not what it's about. It's about you looking at your life, and looking at your finances, and looking at your gifts, and looking at your time, and saying, I am going to leverage this for the kingdom of God, because a billion years from now, I want to be walking through heaven, and have someone I've never seen before stop me and say, I want you to know, I've learned that God used you because of what you did. I am here. That's why we do this together. 
It's because you'll find out that someone who drove into the parking lot feeling like because of all their sin they weren't going to be welcomed and they almost turned around and drove back and left, which we've seen people do, but maybe you served and were standing out in that parking lot and you were waving and saying and welcoming people in and that was that first glimpse that they are accepted no matter who they are, but God's not going to leave who they are. And one day you might hear up in the presence of our Father that God used that welcoming face to start the message of the gospel that whoever you are, God is calling you to himself. Maybe one day you'll, be, you'll learn that serving in the kids' ministry or the student ministry, you help protect these precious little ones who are facing so much more than we can imagine in this generation. But imagine the privilege of being used to draw one of these little ones to God. Don't you know the heart that God has for these children? Imagine that God might want to use you as part of the army to reach them. Don't waste going to work and spending your time at work just to have a successful career. God can do whatever he wants with your career. He's brought people from poverty to royalty and royalty to rags. He can do whatever he wants with your career. But what he wants you to do is go be a presence of the gospel, of justice, of righteousness, of truth. Be the fragrance of Christ, a light to the world, a city on the hill, a salt of the earth. He's called you to be mobilized into the fields as a laborer. I want to leave you with this last thought. You know, interestingly, in that Spider-Man comic book, that original, if you went back to that 1962 original Spider-Man comic book. And after you read through the Spider-Man comic, and it ended with that final frame that I showed you of Spider-Man walking out and realizing, uh, with great power comes great responsibility. If you turn the page, that next page is, is an ad, and if you turn that page, there's this short little one-time comic, three pages. It's was not a series. It's been totally forgotten. It's of Pedros the Bellinger. Let me tell you how this story goes. It says there's a small island in the Mediterranean, small village of, of people who live there. And there's this one man named Pedros, and he has a single job that he does every day. He walks to the little church building and he rings the bells. It's what his father did. It's what his grandfather did. It's what the whole town uses, kind of builds their day upon it. Everyone knows Pedros. Pedros seems to know everyone. It's like he's part of that island. And he goes and he rings the bell every single day. Well, one day the villagers look up and at this volcano in the middle of their small island. They see smoke coming from the top. They begin to get concerned. Is this volcano going to erupt? And they begin to say, well, what's happening? As they watch it throughout the day, the smoke gets bigger. They start seeing things kind of flying out the top. They realize this volcano is erupting. We have to leave the island. We've got to evacuate. This is going to be dangerous. Uh, who knows if we're going to survive? And even if we do, it's going to be a all the wreckage. We've got to evacuate. And so everyone they could find get on board these boats. And they're, they're starting to head to the docks, except for one man, Pedros. Pedros was running to the church building to ring the bells. They say, Pedros, what are you doing? You've got to evacuate. The lava is going to be spewing through this, rolling through here. You've got to escape. And he says, no, no, just in case there's one person. 
I've got to ring the bell for them. I've just got to ring the bell for anyone who might be listening. I've just, I've got to ring that bell. They're like, but Pedros, everyone's, everyone's leaving. He's like, just in case someone's listening, I've got to ring the bell. And as everyone else is evacuating the island, Pedro runs right to the bell tower. And he's standing there just pulling the cord and this, the sound, the somber sound of the bells and as all of the ships are going off and going off to the coast and they're watching back to see what would become of their island, they just hear the bell just chiming over and over and over. And then the comic ends like this. As the lava flows, it surrounds the church and starts to fill the church. The villagers are out on their boats and they hear the bell tolling. And out of the sky, they see a ray of light shining down from heaven. And the villagers could swear they saw a figure that had gotten picked up, taken up into the golden ray of light. And it ends like this. Pedros had been ringing the bell and someone was listening. Don't you know it's the story of our superhero? At a moment when everyone else was lost and fleeing for their lives, he ran to into the city. He didn't run away from the village. He ran, he ran to it. He didn't flee to spare his own life. He gave his own life even just for the one that might hear the bell tolling for the kingdom of God, for the hope that they had. And then God picked him up and brought him back to heaven and following in his footsteps. Church, that will be us. Even if everybody else flees, if everybody else runs from the mess, if everyone else runs from the danger, if everyone else runs from the pain, we will run to ring the bell of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He will find a people that will ring the bell, that will ring the bell in South Florida that the gospel may ring out because there may be just one that God has anointed to hear the response of the gospel. And when he returns, may he find us a people faithful, ringing the bell. Can we celebrate that church? That is who he's called us to be and that is how we are going to respond to his call on our lives. Let me pray for us. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Some of you may be here and there's a call that he has extended to you. He's extended you the call to salvation. He wants to rescue you. He wants to rescue you today. He came down from heaven. The father said go and he came and he died for your sins and he rose again. He defeated death. He defeated sin itself. You can be forgiven. Just put your faith in Jesus today. We take that step. All of us as a church are right now praying for you. We're praying for you that you would respond. Find salvation. Find your eternity. Transformed right now. If that's you, let me lead you in this prayer. Just silently right there, whether you're watching online or sitting here, just say, Jesus, I want to be saved. I believe you died and rose for me. I believe I'm forgiven once and for all. And now I'm on mission following after you. Your kingdom is my first priority. Thank you for calling me to be mobilized on your mission. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if just then that was your I want to encourage you to grab this Get Connected card. It's right in the seat backs in front of you. Just grab that card, fill it out, and you can tell us 
that you put your faith in Jesus. If you're watching online, you can also click the link that is right there, cityrev.org faith. Just share with us that you took the step of faith. Why? Because it, yes, it's very personal, but it's not private. Let us journey with you. Let us celebrate with you. We'd love to put a Bible in your hands. If you go to cityrev.org faith, we'll mail you a Bible. If you take this and you turn this in at either one of the offering boxes or at guest services, we'll put a Bible in your hands today. Let us celebrate with you. Church, we are gonna close with a song. And this song is a reminder that wherever he has sent us, that means the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is going to follow after us. The one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, all the power in heaven and on earth and under the earth. If He's sending us, then He's coming after us and He is going to do a work. That means strongholds are not going to stay intact. That means the enemy is not going to win. That means we know who is victorious. It is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's declare that together. Would you stand with me as we sing? Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.